0: Well, if you have a Bible, please turn to Psalm 3, or you can follow along on page 6 of your bulletin. Last week, as many of you know, we finished our series on the pastoral epistles. And it's some weeks before our fall begins, and so our fall series won't start for a little bit. So the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at some individual Psalms. And this morning, we're in Psalm 3. It's an individual lament of David with many themes that you'll notice from the pastoral epistles. Now, it's an individual lament with unique circumstances in David's life, but it's meant for all of us. In the words of Dr. Jack Collins, a scholar on the Psalms, he says this, these type of Psalms, even though they're individual and a unique circumstance in someone's life, show us how to set before God some situation where we need his help because we are in trouble. Young worshipers that are with us this morning, as we look at this passage, we'll see that something belongs to the Lord. What is it? What belongs to the Lord? And the answer is actually a hidden word in your word search, in your work for young worshipers. So what belongs to the Lord? Hear now the word of the Lord from Psalm 3. A psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, There is no salvation for him in God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Holy, infinite God, would you bring us comfort this morning in your word by your spirit. We ask this in the name of the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I've heard it said that there are three questions you need to ask to know someone. To truly know them, you need the answers to these three questions. What gets them up? What gets them down? And what gets them through? What gets them up? What wakes them up in the morning? What motivates them for the day? What gets them down? What makes things difficult? What brings stress in their life? And lastly, what gets them through? What allows them to keep going, to push through? When things are difficult. And all of these are fascinating questions worth looking at in their own right, but in particular, I'm interested in the last one this morning what gets them through? But in particular, for us, what gets us through? What gets you through? Because we all find ourselves this morning, or have found ourselves going through something, in need of, as it were, getting through. Maybe it's a time of stress at work or at school with lots of pressure heaped on your shoulders. Or a time of relational turmoil and upheaval with loved ones, friends, and family. Or maybe it's the experience of death close to you. Or maybe it's your pain and weakness and alienation you feel even in your own physical body. Or maybe it's deep loneliness and isolation. Maybe it's this time of uncertainty in our church. Maybe it's just getting through what seems like another monotonous day in your life. What are you going through? And what gets you through? In order to get through, many of us, myself included, often turn to our quick fixes. To work more, to do more, to spend more time online, to seek electronic connection, to binge another TV show, to watch another movie. For some of us it's food, for others of us it's alcohol, for some of us it's exercise, for some of us it's seeing a friend or loved one, for some of us it's our pets. I ask again, what gets us through? And the more vulnerable question for all of us, is it working? In Psalm 3, we're let into the mind of David, who was the king of ancient Israel. And as we'll see, he certainly was going through it. He was the king promised by God in 2 Samuel 7 that he would have a great name, that he'd be planted in the capital city of Jerusalem, that he'd have rest from his enemies, that he'd have a faithful son, a throne that would be established forever. But if we read the title of the psalm, we read this, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. The events of this title are recorded in 2 Samuel 15-18. through 18. David is fleeing from his unfaithful son, Absalom. He's not been planted in Jerusalem, but rather he's been uprooted. And his throne seems gone forever. To say David is going through it is probably a bit of an understatement. Certainly something greater than I've ever experienced. And yet in God's infinite wisdom, we get to see David's thoughts. We get to hear him answer the question, what gets you through? So wherever we are this morning, whatever we're going through... Let us hear from God's word. The first thing we see in this passage is that David is real in the first two verses. Look with me. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. David doesn't hesitate to say what's actually going on. Look again at verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. He cries out to the Lord and says he has many foes, many enemies. It's an honest assessment of his situation. He's not sugarcoating it. He's not saying it's not as bad as it actually is. He says, many are rising up against me. Absalom's rebellion is gaining steam at this point, gaining strength. Day by day, people are flocking to Absalom's banner. And everybody that goes to Absalom is, in effect, rising up against David. And then he says this, verse 2. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. David is also clear and real and honest about what his enemies are saying about him. He uses the language, they're saying of my soul. David is admitting that these verbal attacks are hitting him at his very core. And what are they saying? They're saying there is no salvation for him in God. There's no salvation There's no rescue, that God doesn't want to save David, and that God has let him go for good. And this language is not hyperbolic. Actually, in 2 Samuel 16, we see as David is fleeing from Jerusalem, a man named Shimei throws rocks at him and his men and says this. He curses David and says, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son, Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Translation, there is no salvation for you in God. So in these first two verses in Psalm 3, David is expressing what's really going on and his deep inner turmoil about it. Now, the word real has often lost a lot of its meaning these days. We're talking about be real, keeping it real, right? We mean, I'm just going to be true to myself, and whatever I'm thinking, I'm going to say it, things like that. And yet, it's something we all want, to be real. It's something we all desire. And don't take my word for it. The top free app the past couple weeks on the App Store has been an app called Be Real. The idea behind it is they send you a notification once a day, and you have two minutes to take a front and back picture and post it for all your friends to see. And the idea here is you can't use any filters. It's meant to counteract the unreal culture of cultivating social media posts online. And yet, it's more real, but it's still unreal. You still get to choose what you take photos of. You still get to choose the expression on your face. You're still filtering through things online. But this is just an example that is something we all want to be real, and it's also something we find hard to actually do. And we see here in this psalm, David is being real to the Lord with his circumstances and how he's feeling even in those circumstances. But often we find it hard to express what's real. Hard to express our inner turmoil to anyone, let alone to God. Because for some of us, we like to deny what's real. We like to stuff down the emotions, to try to think it's not going to happen, it's not going to be true, to maintain our control. If I just don't think about it, maybe it will all go away sometime. For others of us, we know it's true and we know it's difficult, but we've simply been hurt so many times by people that we are reluctant to open up. We're reluctant to trust others with what's real. And certainly to acknowledge our reality can be difficult and it leaves us vulnerable. And yet here we get a picture of David doing just that. And there's an implicit invitation for us here to call out to God, to tell him all in our hearts and minds all the painful details of what's going on. It's an invitation to be honest about our struggle. Not for the sake of simply being real, but to begin to move even in the midst of struggle. And not just real with God, but real with others who love and care about us. David wrote this psalm, and now it's here in the Bible for all to see. Now, I'm not telling us we need to write something for everybody to read about what we're going through. That's not what I'm saying. But who in your life can you trust with those things? And also, in turn, how can you, how can we, create a place in this church where people can be real about the struggles that they're going through for the sake of moving forward. So David is real. He expresses the reality of his situation, the reality of his inner turmoil, and we're invited to take that same step. But this realness on our own doesn't actually get us anywhere. Rather, it just brings the pain up to the surface, and what are we going to do with it? So we need more. Well, next we see that David remembers Verses 3 and 4. Look with me. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. So David thinks back. He remembers who God is, and he remembers what God has done. Looking again at verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. David here remembers and names three things that the Lord is for him. First, he says, God is a shield about him. This word for shield is a small, round shield, but it's not just protecting him in front. No, God is a shield all around him. God is protection from his enemies. And this language of God as a shield is actually the same covenant language that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 15. Fear not, I am your shield. It's the same language that Moses used in the end of the book of Deuteronomy, language that David was most likely taught growing up. Next, David calls God my glory. What does this mean? David says, my worth, my significance, literally in the Hebrew, my weight is in God, not in these other people, not even in myself. Along those same lines with this, God is the lifter of his head. Those around him don't give David dignity. David doesn't give himself dignity, but God lifts up David's head, even in the most undignified of circumstances. And then he says this, verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. So after remembering who God is, he remembers what God has done. He thinks back to previous events in his life and how God delivered him. The verbs here, I cried aloud and I answered, are past tense. But the conjugation denotes this aspect of a continual past action. Essentially what he's saying is, as often as I cried to the Lord, he answered me. That in the past, David would cry out to God, and God answered him, no less from God's holy hill. And it's not hard, if you know something about the life of David, to imagine what he might be remembering. This isn't the first time he's been on the run for his life. No, he was on the run from the king Saul. Even though at that time David was anointed king, he was forced to flee for his life. And Shimei referenced it in what we heard earlier. So certainly it's something that's on David's heart and mind. And so David, at this point, remembers. He remembers who God is, and he remembers what God has done. This idea of remembering is a common theme in the Bible, especially in the Psalms, and especially in Psalms of lament, Psalms where there's trouble. Psalm 77 says this, in the midst of trouble, the psalmist says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Indeed, you can think about the people of Israel as a people of remembering. How often do they remember the salvation God worked for them in the exodus from Egypt? How often do they remember the law given to Moses? They are a people of remembering. And so David is using that remembering even in the midst of this difficult situation, even in the midst of all that he's going through. So we're encouraged by this psalm also to remember who God is and to remember what he's done. To look back at other times in our lives and see how God was at work to see how God brought us here. We're meant to remember our baptism. It's a phrase that gets thrown out a lot, but the idea here is to look back and say, God was at work in my story. And God continues to be at work. We also can look back to other lives, the lives of others around us, to see God's faithfulness to them in their difficulty. And it's not just others in our own lifetime. Just as David looks back at Abraham and Moses, we look back at faithful believers throughout the centuries and see that God has been faithful to them and faithful to preserving his church. In many ways, as Israel was the culture of remembering, we are meant to be that too. This idea of remembering isn't something done in isolation. It's done in community. And often others can see the work God is doing in our lives easier than we can see it ourselves. They can see the ways the Lord has provided and continues to provide even more than we can sometimes. So David remembers who he is, who God is, excuse me, and his past faithfulness. And we're offered to do the same. But even with remembering, even with being real, that's not enough. Because maybe it wasn't us in the past whom God was faithful to. Or maybe if it was, this situation is different. This situation is unresolved. The situation is ongoing. What gets us through now? Well, next we see that David rests. Verses 5 and 6. Look with me. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. As we go on in Psalm 3, we get yet another layer in the story of David. First, verse 5, look again. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. So at first glance, it's another past tense verb, which is true, but it's a different aspect. The idea here is this is the result of David's remembering even in the midst of all that David is going through now, he sleeps, he rests. And when he sleeps, he's able to wake up again because he's been, as it says, sustained by the Lord. And think back to the context. Here he's being surrounded and pursued by his enemies, right? Sustain is not he gave me a good night's sleep necessarily, but it's he kept me alive as these people wanted to kill me. And it surely would have been easy for David to do anything but rest, to do anything but sleep. It's time for David to strategize, to figure out how he's going to get his kingdom back. It's time to fight, to to get others to his banner. It's time to at least not go to sleep so you can make sure you're not snuck up on unawares. But instead, David chooses to rest, to place himself and his situation in God's hands and not in his own. He reflects on this very fact in verse 6. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Now in verse 1, he was talking about how many his foes were. But as he rests in God, he says, Though there are many thousands, they don't cause him to fear. Even though they're all around, David rests in the Lord, who, remember, is a shield all around him. Rest was even written into the very form of this psalm by David. We have the word selah here, which can be translated a lot of different ways, and there's not a precise meaning, but it means some kind of rest, some kind of pause. That idea of rest is even written into David's words here. To paraphrase another psalm, Psalm 127, David chooses not to eat the bread of anxious toil, but rather to rest. And it's not to say that rest and sleep was necessarily easy for him, but in all that was going on, that's what he chose to do. That's what he chose to spend his time doing. I recently just finished a book with a very provocative title, and it's this, 12 Things God Can't Do. And how it helps you sleep at night. The idea here is that God, as perfect and holy and just and loving, are, there are things he can't do. He can't be surprised. He can't learn. He can't change his mind. And these things, far from being limitations of God, are actually perfections. And these things are what help us know that we can rest, not in ourselves, who can learn, who can be surprised, who can change our mind, but rather we can rest in him. So who God is, Helps us sleep at night. And David is saying that same thing here. After he's real, after he remembers, he rests. He takes things out of his hands and gives them to the Lord. And this psalm invites us, whatever we're going through, to rest. And yet I find in my own life that when there's trouble and turmoil, that's precisely when I don't want to rest. That's precisely when I think I have too much to do we're busy at work, we're busy at school, we're busy at home, then we'd rather stay up. When we do get time, we'd rather stay up and have free time to ourselves rather than rest. And ironically, often the things we do to find rest, we actually seek out activities that make rest harder to come by. We must turn to rest, and in so doing, we rely not on ourselves, but on the Lord. Now, this isn't a panacea for all of our sleep problems, but rather it's an invitation to seek rest even in the midst of those difficulties. It's also an invitation to the rhythms of work and rest that God created, to write those rhythms, as it were, literally and figuratively into our story, as David has done. To carve out time to leave things in God's hands rather than our own, including our work. Specifically, God has written into creation, written into his word, a one-in-seven rhythm of rest. So David rests, even in the midst of all that he's going through. And this psalm encourages us to do the same. Yet as helpful as these three R's are, on their own, they're still insufficient. Because they still don't solve our problems. They still don't solve David's immediate problem of Absalom and his rebellion and people out for his life. So lastly, David seeks a rescue. Verses 7 and 8. Look with me. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. The deeper problem of Absalom's rebellion still remains, no matter how many hours of sleep David got the night before. So he says this in verse 7. "I Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. David here pleads for God to save him. He pleads for God to rescue him. To prove his enemy's statement in verse 2 that there's no salvation for him and God. He says, God, prove that completely and utterly false. And they're jarring pictures we hear, we see in this verse, that you strike all my enemies on the and teeth and you break the teeth of the wicked. Excuse me, you strike all my enemies on the cheek and you break my teeth of the wicked. And these seem at first, if we're not careful, like wanton acts of violence, but actually. Other passages in the Old Testament show us that these things have the idea of justice to them, the idea of public humiliation, because these acts of Absalom and Shimei have been acts of public disgrace and public rebellion and public dishonor against David. And so David is pleading for his ultimate vindication, Lord, show me to be in the right to everybody around me. And yet the problem is deeper still even than that. Because the fact of the matter is, David himself doesn't deserve rescue. Now, why not? He's the king of Israel. He's a man after God's own heart. David had all these promises made to him by God in Second Samuel 7. And in between those promises and in between the events of Absalom's rebellion, we have the events of Second Samuel 11 and 12, where David violates Bathsheba and has Uriah, her husband, murdered. And after these very events, these sins in David's life, this rebellion with Absalom is prophesied. These very events are foretold. And so in a way, Shimei was half right. David does have blood guilt, not on the house of Saul, but a double blood guilt on the house of Uriah. In a very real sense, these events are the results of David's sins. And we too don't deserve rescue. For some of us, our events are ones that we've produced, holes we've dug for ourselves. For others, these particular events might not be our fault. But that doesn't mean we're innocent. We're all unfaithful sons and daughters of the king, like Absalom. And we're not the king of Israel, so why should God save us? Why should he rescue us? And into our pain, into our despair, into our turmoil comes verse 8. Look with me. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people salvation, rescue, belongs not to us, but to God, which means it's his to give out to whomever he will. And all those to whom he gives it, who are his people, have blessings in his name. But how is this possible? How can God give us rescue and salvation? Where does our blood guilt go? For David and for us. Well, think back to another loose end of the David story, the promises of 2 Samuel 7 that seem to be null and void a faithful son, an eternal throne, those all seem gone away, but yet they are not, because they were fulfilled in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was the faithful son of David. He is the eternal king. He was a real person who lived and died, who experienced the pain of life. He was the word made flesh, born of the virgin. He suffered and died, but he also rose again from the dead. And more than remembering other events in our lives or the lives of others, which is good, we remember this, that Christ has come to save us. That we can rest because he himself bore our punishment. He himself took our blood guilt. He himself wasn't rescued so that we might be rescued. And so now all who, are faith in him, who have faith in him, all who are God's people, now have this great blessing and this great hope not hope of mere deliverance within our circumstances now, but the very presence of God in the midst of whatever we're going through and the blessed and ultimate hope of resurrection to come, of eternal, glorious life with God. All because of the work, the rescue of Jesus Christ and all that comes with us with that that he gives to us. I was reading a couple months ago an article of the BBC. The title caught me off guard. It said, An Ancient Guide for Uncertain Times. And I said, I wonder what their ancient guide is. And I looked to the article and they were saying, in the midst of everything that's going on with wars, with instability, with economic things, with inflation, all, all those sorts of things, what's an ancient guide for uncertain times? And their answer was Stoicism. Their answer was to look back at the great philosophers like Zeno, Epictetus, Seneca, Marcus Aurelius, and recognize these things. You should recognize what you can't control, which is pretty much everything, and instead recognize what you can control, which is only your thoughts and actions. The idea is don't empathize with your whole heart and mind with people and your whole soul, but recognize what's going on and simply sort of be above it. The idea is to save ourselves from the ultimate pain of this life, we also need to cut ourselves off from the ultimate joys of this life. That there's no hope for a great rescue. You're just a small piece in the vast ocean that's out of your control. Contrast this with the picture painted by David today. Contrast the writing of all these learned philosophers with the words of a Mrs. Athens, who in the 18th century was on her deathbed, a woman I had never heard about before this week. Think about all these philosophers have written over the many, many years, and think about in contrast this one statement of faith of a woman on her deathbed. I bless God. I have not one fear concerning dying. That Almighty Lord, who has so wonderfully preserved me to the present moment, will not forsake me in my last extremity. No, when flesh and heart fail, He will be the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, even in that, she's she's writing into her prayer a psalm. That's what the Psalms are for, for us to pray along with them. And that's why we see this Psalm given to us, this Psalm of David. So that we look not to what we can control in our little minuscule size in the universe, but rather we look to the hope, the joy, the resource and suffering that is faith in Jesus Christ. Our suffering, but also our risen Savior. And Psalm 3 helps us to do just that. Going back to our friend Dr. Collins, he says this about Psalm 3. David models genuine faith in his dire straits, and readers can learn to do the same in theirs. That in our suffering, in our pain, in our turmoil, in our hopelessness, no matter what we're going through, we can be real about our pain. We can remember who God is. We can remember what he has done. We can rest, even in those difficult times. Because what gets us through is nothing less than the great rescue, the great salvation that has been given to us in Jesus Christ. And our hope is this, even in the midst of whatever we're going through now, that one day we will worship the Lord and we will see him and we will say with all the saints of Revelation, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is our hope. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Gracious Heavenly Father, your gift is so big to us. Lord, would you help us to see it more clearly in the midst of whatever we're going through? Would you help us to turn to you, to turn to one another in your church, to be real about our suffering, to remember who you are and what you've done in our lives and the lives of others, to rest faithfully in you, and Lord, to remember all that you've done and accomplished for us in the person and work of your Son, Jesus. Thank you for this grace. Thank you for this life. Thank you for this hope. Lord, be with us this week, we pray. In the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.